If you would bow your heads with me. Almighty God, gracious Father, we come before you a people who know the brokenness of our world and are dumbfounded that you would love us enough to meet us with such grace. And so, Heavenly Father, we pray that you will break the bread of your word and feed us richly this morning, that you, you will again pour out the offering of your blood, that, that we might be made clean and whole. All this, Lord, so that you might empower us for your will and work and way in the world. In Jesus' name we pray and ask it, and all God's people said, Amen. If you would turn with me to Luke 24, beginning at verse 36, Luke, Luke 24, verse 36 through 53. Here again, the Word of God. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. But they were startled and frightened, and they thought they saw a spirit. He said to them, Why are you troubled? Why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and feet, it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit doesn't have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet, and while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it before them. And he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. When he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it's written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. That repentance for the forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. Behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you were clothed with power from on high. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting his hands, he blessed them. And while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. The word of the Lord. We live in a world that has a problem with truth. Truth establishes incontrovertible boundaries within which we live and operate, especially if we enjoy life, if we want to enjoy life, without penalty. Before I talk about everyone else's problem, I have to speak to you of my own. When I was growing up, my mom had a family rule, our truth, if you will. Actually, there were a number of rules, but this is the one in question this morning. 
During summer, after dinner, the expectation was that we were to come home when night fell, or in mom's words, when the street lights came on. Now, mind you, I was very good at finding loopholes in in seemingly ironclad dictums. I was a pro at it. As it happened, I noticed the streetlight closest to our house had gone out. The lights came on. I continued to play ball with my friends. Finally, Mom came looking for me. That normally had a negative outcome. Let, Let me be absolutely clear about that. Immediately, she blurted out, I thought I told you to come home when the lights came on, when the street lights came on. I looked at her and said, but our light isn't on. Mom looked, stammered, spluttered, and finally she just threw up her hands and in a resigned voice she said, oh, just come home. Clearly, she'd done this dance before and I had worn her out. I was that child. The fact is we struggle with truth and the boundaries it creates because it calls our feelings and choices into question. Isn't the mantra of our time, if I feel it, it must be true? That is, truth is relative and it's relative because my truth is more important than any other truth. Do you remember the correspondence theory of truth from school? It teaches us that truth is that which corresponds with reality. Truth is what is real. There's not one truth for me, another for you. As Christians, we know this. We're we're quick to reference John 14, 6 about one particular truth. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me, but through me. Our word counters with But true isn't true for everyone. Understand, there's a difference between subjective truth because subjective truth changes with changing things and circumstances. Objective truth doesn't change because it's based on that which is concrete, tangible, real, and unchanging. Speaking of God's nature, the Bible says, for I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed, Malachi 3.6. And then there's this, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and, yeah, forever, Hebrews 13.8. According to Scripture, God is unchanging, objective reality. God is tangible. Let me walk you through an example. You're very allergic to peanuts to the point that if you ate them, you'd have a severe allergy, a severe reaction that could potentially put your life at risk. That's an objective truth. Now, because you love the taste, the texture, the smell of peanuts, you you decide that this objective reality isn't true. What you feel is true. You love peanuts. You're going to eat them anyway. That's a subjective truth. The problem is it doesn't impact the objective truth. Those peanuts you eat will still trigger an allergic reaction. In this case, subjective truth has trumped objective truth to a negative end. Objective truth doesn't change. Subjective truth does. It's always relative. Objective truth always aligns with reality. 
Here's a second example. I'm going to divide the congregation in half this morning. I'm going to split you in two groups, giving each group a different set of directions to a treasure. The treasure is enough world-class chocolate for all of you to eat your fill. Now, if one set of the directions was good, the other wasn't accurate, what would happen? What would happen? We'd win. (laughs) Only if you were on the side that got the good directions, right? Half of you would find the treasure, would celebrate and delight in the fruitful and good end of your hunt. The other half, the other half wouldn't, and if you really liked chocolate, you'd come hunting me with tarn feathers. Because the false directions offered you something that seemed to promise good, but showed you that which wasn't real. Luke's time also dealt with objective and subjective truth. Jesus had been crucified. That's an objective truth. No one survived crucifixion. Further, he'd been certified dead by Roman soldiers who were really quite proficient at establishing death. Therefore, in the minds of those in power and those who had none, there were only two options for post-crucifixion appearances of Jesus. Jesus must be dead and the body stolen, a subjective truth because the only evidence is that the body isn't in the tomb which had been guarded by soldiers. Note Matthew 27, 62 through 66, and Matthew 28, 11 through 15, which both contain whistleblower testimony. Therefore, Jesus' supposed appearance, according to the authority, was a lie to advance some nefarious political end. Or, option two, Jesus was a disembodied spirit. It was a common belief in the ancient world. Again, subjective truth. Now, there's a third option possible. Jesus was alive as he proclaimed he would be. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised, Matthew 16, 21. So Luke now answers the subjective with the objective. Jesus appears among them. We'll come back to that in just a moment. But note verse 38. He said to them, why are you troubled? Why do, your, why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me. Touch me and see. I, I mean, remember in John's gospel, he told John, told uh, Thomas to take his fist and literally grind it in the wound in his side. Touch me and see. For a spirit doesn't have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and feet. Jesus can be touched, his wounds felt. He is walking and talking, therefore he is neither a disembodied spirit nor a corpse. Now, the story continues. While they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish. He took it and ate it before them. Jesus eats. Disembodied spirits don't need to eat. The dead can't eat. 
And now Jesus doubles down. He reminds them of the attestation of the, Holy, of the Old Testament, the work of the Holy Spirit in communicating God's word for centuries. He said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Throughout Scripture, the objective truth of Jesus' birth, life, resurrection, his preexistence, his nature, his power is revealed for whoever to see and hear to see and hear. Jesus walks the disciples through that recorded witness, which is deep and extensive. Now, his glorified nature attests to the truth of who he is, the predicted Messiah. Did you catch it as we read as they were talking about these things? Jesus himself stood among them, and he said to them, peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought he was a spirit. Jesus isn't bound by the laws of physics as we experience them. But Jesus' appearance in the midst of them is consistent with the laws of physics as we now understand them. He doesn't open a door and walk in a room. He appears. He instructs them. He leads them to Bethany where he ascends to heaven. And he, he led them out as far as Bethany. And lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And he blessed them and parted from them and was carried up into heaven and they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing and praising God. As if this isn't enough, remember Paul's testimony. For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised from the dead, um, on the third day, in accordance with the Scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas, then to the Twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Jesus appeared in a way that could be experienced through all of our earthly senses, to well over 500 men. Remember, the Hebrew practice is simply to name men as representative of families. So we're talking about way more than 500 people here, right? Way more. Most of whom were still alive and able to attest to what they'd experienced at the time of Paul's writing. You could hear, see, touch, and smell him. So, what are we to do when presented with the reality of objective truth? Scripture tells us we see, we come, we see, we stay, experience, and believe, we go, and we tell. After all, isn't that what Philip did? He came, he saw, he stayed, he believed, and then he went and told Nathaniel, who did the same. John 1, 43 through 51. So why do we, why do we go tell? Why, why go tell? Why is that so important? We tell because it is true, and it's such a good and amazing truth that we just have to share it. 
the news that I can receive forgiveness for my sins and be restored to relationship with God when I was the one who breached the relationship is awesome news that deserves to be shared. The reality that Jesus loves me where I am but is not content to leave me there and acts to restore me to God's design intent is over-the-top news. How can you and I not share that? How can we not celebrate and joy in that? We tell because the truth of God's Word corresponds to reality better than anything the world affirms. Jesus told us, thus it's written, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in His name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are my witnesses of these things. Did you hear it? Behold, I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. This is our mission. This is our task. We are witnesses to the truth of Jesus' suffering, death, and resurrection so that others can believe and receive forgiveness of sins. We don't do the saving. Christ does the saving through the power of the Holy Spirit, but we get to partner in that work by testifying to that truth. We go and tell everyone everywhere glad truth of the gospel. This is what a witness does. He or she shares what they've seen, heard, touched, tasted, smelled, in short, what they've experienced. How does the psalmist say it? Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Right? Experience it. Then make a judgment. Then decide. Even better and more mind-boggling, Jesus commissions witnesses who deserted and denied him. He charges us with the task of sharing the gospel of God's amazing grace. Wow, making disciples of every people requires telling. Showing alone isn't enough. So how can we do this? I mean, here's the truth of it. If you're like me, here's what's going through your head. Look, I'm not able. My my memory isn't what it once was. My senses are failing. Hearing, my wife can testify to that. Sight foremost among them. I'm not confident in my ability to faithfully witness. I fear the reception my words will receive. Now add to this. The compounding difficulty of witnessing to Christ as Lord and Savior in this current culture and Jesus' charge becomes truly daunting. But remember Jesus' words to the disciples then. They're the same as his words to disciples now. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. Acts 1.8 records Jesus saying, you're my witnesses. Back then, they had to wait for the gift of the Holy Spirit until the day of Pentecost. 
Now every day is a day of Pentecost for the one who has received God's gift of grace in Jesus Christ and believes and lives in and through him. God gives us what is needed of his nature and his power as we need it to show and tell the world about Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, we have no excuses. So what's the gospel we share? Luke told you. Thus it's written that Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. That goes like this. God created the world and all that's in it. His design was flawless, perfect, satisfied. He declared it good. You and I, the capstone of creation, his people, he deemed very good. We walked in perfect relationship with God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, naked and unashamed in the garden. Creator, creature, and the created were one. We knew no pain, no suffering, no loss, nor heart-rending breach of relationship. Life was that way for untold seasons, until suddenly it wasn't. Even though we had access to everything we needed for abundant life forever, we gave it up in pursuit of a lie. Instead of rejoicing in all that we had, we became fixated on the one thing we lacked, one fruit from one tree in the middle of the garden. You might wonder what the big deal is. After all, it's only a piece of fruit. But, but this piece of fruit was a declaration of independence from God. Adam and Eve chose to decide good and evil apart from God, and if the truth be known apart from anyone else, to doubt God's goodness, to rebel against the Father's authority over us, to reject His design purposes for us, and they chose self-deception. We thought we knew how to love better than the one who had loved us into being. The Bible calls this sin. And so our hard wiring to be in relationship with God was replaced with relationship with lesser things, finite things that, that couldn't satisfy, but were given first place in our lives. Brokenness then was seen and experienced in all things. It's evidenced in struggling relationships, in isolation, addiction, and despair. It's seen in guilt, shame, and emptiness. It's displayed in the abuse of power and control. Sin spiraled and grew, but we never completely forgot what had been. Ecclesiastes 3.11 makes this observation. Also, he's put eternity into a man's heart yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. Do you hear it? Despite the fall, we retain the lingering yearning for what was, for the love, the place, the identity, the position, the purpose that only God can give. And while we are the pinnacle of God's created work, we are not God. We never will be. We're finite and limited, and it's impossible for limited people to replace an unlimited God. And so we hunger for what was. Our stories would end in the most unsatisfactory and tragic ways, but our Heavenly Father wouldn't allow it. 
despite our distrust, despite our rebellions, He loved us enough to send His Son on a search and rescue mission. Jesus took on flesh. He surrendered every last one of His heavenly prerogatives, and He became one of us. Sinless, He suffered abuse, crucifixion and death on a cross to secure our freedom from sin and death. He paid the price our sin had incurred. He did this so that we could be restored to full relationship with God so that God's image and likeness could be restored in us. Beginning right here and right now for those who receive and believe that Jesus Christ is Lord and commit to Him being their Lord. We were created for relationship with God. How does the psalmist say it? Lord, you've been our dwelling place from in all generations. Psalm 90, verse 1. We were made to be at home with Him. Jesus said it even more clearly. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many what? Rooms, mansions, depending on the translation. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I'll come again, take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. There's one more part of the story. Imagine, we can be like Jesus. He's our prototype. So says Paul in Colossians 1, verses 15 through 21. It speaks about Jesus as, pro, as firstborn. That's the Greek word prototokos, from which we get our word prototype, right? Put another way, through the power of the Holy Spirit, we can love as God loves. How does John say it in 1 John 4? And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins, the redemptive payment required to restore relationship. God's love is so different from ours. It, it doesn't affirm what you or I feel to make us feel good. Instead, it lays down self-interest for the sake of another and places the other's spiritual and physical life with God first and foremost. In Romans chapters 1 through 4, you can see the heart of Paul's proclamation of the gospel. In it, he provides answers to four questions. Who made us and to whom are we accountable? Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 21. What's our human problem? We're in trouble and why? Romans 1, through 3, 3.20. What's God's solution to the problem? Put another way, how has God acted to save us from that problem? Romans 3, verses 21 through 26. And how can I in this moment come to be included in God's offered salvation? Or put another way, what makes this good news for me, not just for somebody else? Romans 3, 22 through 45. The model of proclamation is simple and consistent. God, man, Christ, our response. So, I told the folks yesterday, I'm a practitioner.
you, you just have to bring it down to the bottom shelf and make it real. So, there's a guy named Jimmy Scroggins at a family church down in West Palm Beach. And Jimmy has a way that he teaches and equips his folks for sharing gospel called the three circles, right? The three circles, remember we, we talked about those questions? The three circles answers those questions, right? What is our problem? What is God's answer to the problem, right? God's design is that the world is perfect, first circle. The problem is we live in brokenness, sin that we experience in a whole host of ways, second circle. Third circle is what God does about the problem, answers the problem through Jesus Christ our Lord. So here's the reality. We lived in a world that was perfect. Remember we said everything was in perfect relationship with God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There was no division, there was no separation until finally one day there was. And when that day happened, when our forebears ate of the apple, this became our reality. Division, right? Separation, alienation, loss. But in our heads, rebellious people all, we think we can do it. We think through our own effort, out of our own wisdom, through our own power, we can create again a perfect creation, not out of God's design, but out of our own. And so, lo and behold, look what happens. Despite the best of our efforts, we can only come together in the most limited ways. But remember, God had a solution to the problem. That solution was Jesus Christ, who died that we might live, who lived sinless so that we might be restored in the eyes of God to that state. And Jesus Christ did for us a work that would have been otherwise utterly and completely impossible. He brought us home to God's table, to place in God's house, to position, right? Robed and ringed and sandals, to identity and purpose. He did all that for us, and it all happened through the power and the gift of grace of Jesus Christ our Lord, who does for us what would otherwise be impossible. He makes us one again. Now, I've got to caution you, brothers and sisters. Unless you keep walking intimately, closely with God the Father, unless you keep diving into God's Word so that it's rooted and established in your heart so that God's wisdom and God's nature becomes yours, and unless, unless you are intimate with the Word made flesh, Jesus Christ, you won't stay one. This will happen. 
All of a sudden, despite your best intentions, despite your best efforts, you will find that, lo and behold, life isn't what it had been. You're out of relationship. You're out of unity. And life's back to being in a knot. So here's the deal. Jesus commissions us, you and me, us, humble and lowly and incomplete and inadequate as we are. He gives us a charge to accomplish, but he does it by his power and through his grace. And that charge is to go tell. Tell your family, tell your friends, tell your neighbors, tell your coworkers, tell your associates and the strangers you meet. Tell them the good news of Jesus Christ. Tell them the story of God's work in the world as told in the Bible corresponds with reality better than anything else that they're going to read about, that they'll hear about. Tell them that it's a grace sufficient for their need and yours. A love great enough for any person and any situation. A hope that is unquenchable. A faith that is unshakable. This is the truth upon which we stand. This is the hope through which we can fully live. So, go tell. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we are utterly un inadequate for all of these things. Your love for us, the, the, the steadfast love and mercy you offer to us, the redemption that you provide for us, the restoration in which you establish us, these are more than, than we can ask, Lord. And it drives us to our knees as we consider the cost paid. And so, Father, as we come to this table, a table of grace, a table of love, a table of, of place and position and identity and purpose, a table of recommitment. We recommit ourselves to your work, your will, done your way in the world. Lord, we will be disciple makers. We will be your witnesses, not only in what we do, but also in what we say as we faithfully recount what we've seen and experienced, the good news of your great grace in Jesus Christ our Lord. Oh, Father, let it be so. And all God's people prayed and said, Amen.